If you had one shot or one opportunity to seize everything you ever wanted, one moment, would you capture it? We are less than four years into the Me Too era, a movement dedicated to holding abusive men accountable for their actions, and already our society is showing signs of fatigue. Already there are many people bemoaning the harm overzealous cancel culture is having on us. So these naysayers would likely have loved the 75th Academy Awards, where convicted pedophile Roman Polanski was not only nominated for Best Director, with his film The Pianist earning several other nominations including Best Picture, but he also won. Of course, Roman Polanski was not in attendance at the ceremony since he chose to flee the country in 1978 rather than serve his sentence for the rape of a 13-year-old girl. But this was 2003, those heady days before confessed and convicted rapists were so callously canceled. So as presenter Harrison Ford read the results, the auditorium erupted into thunderous applause. The camera stayed on Ford, ready for a quick cutaway, but the crowd would not have it. They continued to whoop and cheer for this man who drugged and raped a child, and the camera was forced to pan the crowd to confirm that not only were people applauding for this criminal, but several were also leaping to their feet in standing ovation. So yes, it can be frustrating to have to give up beloved pieces of entertainment or reconsider an artist's work in light of his personal failings. It can also sometimes seem like an overreaction when your favorite star loses out on jobs because of something you don't consider to be that bad in the grand scheme of things. But if you start thinking this way, just think back to 2003, a mere 18 years ago, when a man who pled guilty to unlawful intercourse with a minor could still be exalted for his craft. Maybe the pendulum has swung too far to the other side, but for centuries these men haven't been held accountable, so maybe it's more than a little fair to expect over-accountability for at least five years? Hello and welcome to For Your Reconsideration, the podcast where we re-examine best picture races and determine if the Academy got it right. I'm Devin. And I'm Kyle. And today we are talking about the 75th Academy Awards awarded in 2003 for the best films of 2002, hosted by Steve Martin. Ooh. Yeah. So let's cast our minds back to the year 2002. (laughs) (laughs) when these movies came out remind ourselves the atmosphere in which these films were viewed shall we uh the president was george w bush in january 8th uh george w bush signed the no child left behind act into law or as as many teachers like to call it no child left untested (laughs) that one's for my mom one of our most loyal listeners okay (laughs) Hey, Sue. (laughs) Um, On on October 2nd, the Beltway sniper attacks began with five shootings taking place in Montgomery County, Maryland. On October 9th, I know I said Maryland. (laughs) You said it really odd. You should should just let it lie. Just let it happen. I couldn't. It was was so pleasant. All right. All right. Um, On October 9th, the dot-com bubble bear market reached bottom when the Dow Jones industrial average slipped below 7,200. I don't know what that means, I, I need but to, I think it was bad. Yeah, I need to know this to put our movies into context. Well, I'm just saying, I'm just letting you know what was going on. Okay. From October 9th to October 10th, Congress passed the Iraq Resolution Authorizing the Iraq War. 
And on November 25th, uh, George W. Bush signed the Homeland Security Act into law, establishing the Department of Homeland Security, the largest U.S. government reorganization since the creation of the Department of Defense in 1947. Hmm. Interesting thing. Wouldn't we get a better temperature if we looked at 2001? What were you saying? We should get a, we would get a better temperature. If- yeah, of two thousand and of two thousand and uh, I guess two thousand two years prior. Really, wouldn't you get a better t- temperature on the movies being set to be made? Yeah, but I also think that like why people respond to a movie can sometimes be ah, explained by what's happening in the world. When Not they necessarily see the it. context of them making it. Yeah, but the context of how it's viewed. Yeah, fair enough. Also, if they need that two thousand information, it's in the previous episode, previous yeah. season. So previous season one, check it out. Season two. Two thousand. Well, two thousand one. Oh, then not yeah. Yeah. Well, just listen to all our episodes to be safe. Yeah, don't just start here. No. Jeez. It's a weird place to start. Yeah. It's like the end of a season. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, enough about that. Do you want to talk about what happened in the year of film? Yes. Uh Spider Man, the first Spider Man, is the first film to make over 100 million dollars during its opening weekend in the u.s unadjusted for inflation oh wow mm-hmm. on may 16th star wars episode 2 attack of the clown <laughs> attack of the clones <laughs> opened in theaters um although a huge success it was the first star wars film not to be the highest grossing of the year wow isn't that crazy i wonder if it's still the only one oh. no way to know did not look that up Amelie, directed by Jean-Pierre Jeunet, won the 2002 César Award for Best Film, Best Director, Best Music, and Best Art Direction. And Amelie also became the highest-grossing French-language film in the United States ever. My uh, my co-host can't pronounce Marilyn, but, <laughs> but really went... I doubt I pronounced any of that correctly <laughs> either. Uh. All right. In 2002 was the first year to see three films cross the $800 million milestone, surpassing the previous year's record of two $800 million films. It also surpassed the previous year's record of having the most ticket sales in a single year. Lots of people are going to the movies in 2002. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of, you want to know what the top 10 films were of the year? Let's do it. Number 10, Minority Report. Number 9, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Number eight, Ice Age. Number seven, Signs. Number six, Die Another Day. Number five, Men in Black 2. Number four, Star Wars Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. Number three, Spider-Man. Number two, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. And number one, The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. That seems to track. It all makes sense. One me. thing I wanted to mention about Spider-Man. Yeah. Do you, do you recall, like, you know how they put up posters in the movie theaters for, like, movies, but they're, like, months away, so it's just, like, the early poster? Mm-hmm. Do you know, do you remember what Spider-Man's was? No. You heard of this? It's kind of infamous. I remember it. mm It was the Twin Towers with a giant spider web and him in the middle of it. Like, there was a spider web between the Twin Towers. Like, post-9-11? Or no, pre-9/11? it was pre-9-11. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was pre-9-11. So, they, yeah, they got rid of that advertising during... That's really interesting, actually. Yeah, it is. It really is. Hmm. I bet those posters go for so much money. Oh, I bet, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Anyway, you want to hear some fun facts about the ceremony for the Oscars? As long as they are soups fun, Devin. They're the most fun. I don't tell you boring facts. 
Uh, the telecast garnered about 33 million viewers in the United States, making it the least watched and lowest rated televised Oscar ceremony to that point. It's got worse since. Yeah, it has. Yeah, 33 million. They would kill Wait, for 33 million. Don't, you, don't you just say this fact every year? Yeah, <laughs> like, every, from this point on, it's yeah. like, and this was the lowest, yeah. and this was the lowest. Uh, Chicago became the first musical film to win Best Picture since 1968's Oliver. There's an exclamation point in Oliver. Yeah, That's my reading of it. Uh, at age 29, Adrian Brody was the youngest person to win Best Actor. With her 13th nomination, Meryl Streep became... 29? Yeah. Dang. I'm sorry. It's just, it makes sense. It's just, wow. With her 13th nomination, Meryl Streep became the most nominated actor in Oscar history. Meanwhile, Best Actor nominee Jack Nicholson earned his 12th nomination, extending his record as the most nominated male performer. And Julianne Moore was the ninth performer to earn two acting nominations in the same year. Hmm. I feel like at this point, Meryl Streep is on like 19 Oscar nominations. Yeah. I don't even know. Uh, Lose Yourself from 8 Mile became the first rap song to win Best Original Song. To commemorate the 75th anniversary of the Academy Awards, 59 actors who have received both competitive and honorary awards appeared seated on stage together during a segment called Oscar's Family Album. Each former winner was acknowledged by announcer Neil Ross and Randy Thomas with the films he or she won for. At the end of the segment, newly minted winners Adrian Brody, Chris Cooper, Nicole Kidman, and Catherine Zeta-Jones, along with honorary Oscar recipient Peter O'Toole, joined them. Uh, the American-led invasion of Iraq affected the telecast and its surrounding events. Hours after news that the war had commenced, several actors such as Kate Blanchett, Jim Carrey, and Will Smith resigned from their roles as presenters, citing safety concerns and respect for military families. Despite pleas from broadcaster ABC to postpone the proceedings up to a week, AMPS President Pearson and ceremony producer Cates refused to delay the gala to a different date, citing unavailability of the Kodak Theater. Pearson also stated that moving the festivities to a different venue would be too expensive. However, they also announced that the red carpet festivities would be severely curtailed. The bleacher seats situated along Hollywood Boulevard were dismantled and ticket holders for those seats received rain checks that were good towards the next year's event. Periodically during commercial breaks, ABC News anchor and journalist Peter Jennings gave brief news updates regarding the events happening overseas. Heo Miyazaki, who won Best Animated Feature for Spirited Away, boycotted in protest against the Iraq war, stating that, quote, he didn't want to visit a country that was bombing Iraq. Shortly after winning the Oscar for Best Documentary Feature, Bowling for Columbine director Michael Moore spoke out against U.S. President George Bush and the Iraq war. He further criticized the president, stating, quote, we live in a time with fictitious election results that elect fictitious presidents. We live in a time when we have a man sending us to war for fictitious reasons. End quote. The speech was received with a mix of boos, applause, and standing ovations from the audience at the theater. Yeah, so many fun facts there, Devin. Thank you. I appreciate it. They were just delightful. I thought they were interesting. They were. Fun sometimes means interesting. Okay. Fine. Let's talk about the movies that were nominated then. Okay. Up first, we have the number one movie of 2002. Are we just in it? Are we in it? This happening and starting? <laughs> it's happening. I hope you're ready. Buckle ready. in. All right. Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. This is my job. I don't know why oh, sorry. Away from me. All season, we've been doing it this way. But you're suddenly. Well, you're just staring at me. I, I know. I didn't know we were. I didn't know we were jumping in it. Usually, like, let's talk about movies. That's what I just said. Oh, is it? Oh, missed it. 
All right. Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, directed by Peter Jackson with a screenplay by Fran Walsh, Philippa Boyan, Stephen Sinclair, and Peter Jackson based on the beloved novel by J.R.R. Tolkien. A new power is rising. While Frodo and Sam edge closer to Mordor with the help of the shifty Gollum, the divided fellowship makes a stand against Sauron's new ally, new ally, new ally, Saruman, <laughs> and his hordes of Isengard. I was so focused on separating Sauron and Saruman mm-hmm. that I messed up ally. You dick pooped it. I did. And that's, yeah, that's the description of the movie. Okay. You want to hear some interesting facts about the movie? I do. Okay. The screenwriter. Does this mean they're depressing? I don't. No. <laughs> okay. I mean, so are they fun facts? Trying to breathe. Yeah. Okay. Well, you just always say that they're. I'm. I'm not setting you up for fun, so you won't be disappointed. <laughs> You'll just be like, "Oh, those were interesting facts." Okay. The screenwriters did not originally script the Two Towers as its own film. Instead, parts of it were the conclusion to the Fellowship of the Ring and the first two planned films under Miramax. However, as the two films became a trilogy under New Line, Jackson, Walsh, and Boyens shuffled their scripts. The Two Towers was the most difficult of the Rings film to make, having neither a clear beginning nor end to focus the script. Nonetheless, they had Amen. a clear decision with making the Battle of Helm's Deep the climax, a decision affecting the whole story's moods and style. Also, like, isn't it based on a book that I'm assuming had a beginning and an end? I would think so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, for the two towers, Weta Digital doubled their staff of 260. In total, they were produced 73 minutes of digital effects with 799 shots and were tasked with creating two completely digital characters. Weta began animating Gollum in late 1998 to convince New Line they could achieve the effect. Originally, Gollum was set to solely be a CGI character, but Jackson was so impressed with Andy Serkis's audition tape that they used him on set as well. Treebeard took between 28 and 48 hours per frame to render. For scenes where he interacts with Merry and Pippin, a 14-tall puppet was built on a wheel. I want to go back. I want people to, people to know, like I'm sure they do, but just in case you do, you do not, a second of a movie is 24 frames. So you said it took a day to two days for each frame? Yeah, to okay. render it. Yeah. So it could take a month for a second of, of, of Treebeard's of tree appearance in the film. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. Sorry. Uh, while the scores of its predecessor and sequel won the Academy Award for Best Score, the soundtrack for The Two Towers was not nominated. Initially, there was confusion over the score's eligibility due to a new rule applying to sequels, but the Academy did declare it eligible, but then did not nominate it. Wow. Okay. Isn't that so but weird? That had to be based on purely the confusion then. I guess. That's insane. Yeah. That soundtrack is beautiful. Yeah, it seems so weird that both the other two would like win. Yeah. This one doesn't even get nominated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Is that or is that we done with facts? Those are the facts. How are you gonna take a drink of water and not tell me you're done with the facts first? I thought drinking the water would, would show to you I was done. I thought you just needed a needed a quick th- drink. Well also that. Alright. Um yeah, so Lord of the Rings of Two Towers. Uh this is uh certainly hasn't been Devin's favorite trilogy thus far. Um not that we have a lot of trilogies on here. Not a lot of trilogies no. besides The Godfather that have been nominated yeah. for Best Picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, what did you think of the movie as a whole? You know, I honestly liked it better than Fellowship of the Ring. Okay. And I've seen it before. Like, I saw it when it came out, which was, you know, obviously a very long time ago. That's the only time I've seen it. Uh, 
But I liked it. I I enjoyed it a lot more. It felt like more happened in this one than in Fellowship of the Ring. Maybe just because there was like a battle and... There was a battle in Fellowship. A you know. couple. Well, yeah, but I slept through those, so it didn't make as much of an impact <laughs> on me. Um, <laughs> no, I really... I enjoyed it. I think that it's a, it's a well-done little fantasy film. Well, Devin, I'm going to sit in here and disagree with you, okay? You hate it? I didn't hate it, but I certainly don't think it is as good as Fellowship. Yeah, I think I'm the only one who thinks that. Yeah. I think Fellowship is a masterpiece, and I literally, I know it's become such a common joke about these movies are just all about a group of people walking, Uh but that feels no more literal than with this movie to me. To the point where, like, we brought up Treebeard earlier. They walk to the edge of the forest, and then they're like, wait, let's go to this other edge of the forest. Mm Mm-hmm. I just and then that's what Mary and Pippin do for the rest of the movie. Yeah, they just ride <laughs> on a, on a tree the whole time that walks. And then they attack Isengard. No, I know. There's cool things that happen, like the the yeah, Isengard battle is cool. The Helm's Deep battle is cool, sure. But this movie does just definitely feel like a bridge between two movies. Yeah. Um, with a little bit of exploration as far as the weight of the ring and and all this jazz, but it really feels like you waited a year. To see this movie you're like damn i just really need like it's just that was kind of good like i needed to see that like i'm happy that i got those visuals and i got this part of the story but i feel like all the real good stuff is in the first and the third and then this is just kind of filler now but obviously super impressive like you mentioned all the cgi all the work i mean the battle of helms deep alone isengard insane stuff just yeah. insane stuff but i found this to be the terribly boring outside of those things honestly i didn't think it was boring and i think too like obviously when i first saw it i didn't you know i was you know 12 or 13 years old so i didn't you know think too deeply about it but i think with this one like knowing that J.R. tolkien like based the books on his experiences um fighting in world war one i felt like i could feel it a lot more with this one than with fellowship of the ring maybe Mm -hmm. just because there is more warfare type there's stuff less yeah, character establishments like the first one is a lot of character establishment yeah so i kind of appreciated that i thought that that allegory worked really well mm-hmm. in this film yes so it is very that. like it is very kind of heavy with it not in a bad way but it's just like yeah i don't think it's heavy i think it's if you didn't know that that's what it's an allegory for i don't think it would you know mm-hmm. you'd be like what are they talking about you know what i mean but i think like knowing it you're like oh yeah it really it adds a layer yeah about like everybody even if they're not the you know everybody has to band together to fight evil and whatnot mm-hmm. so i enjoyed it you know i love me some aragon so a good time for me it's an aragorn aragorn yeah i kind of love him you know yeah <laughs> she was waiting for the slow motion door opening scene yeah like i said i was like 12 or 13 the first time i saw this movie and that scene meant a great deal to me <laughs> <laughs> and it did not disappoint when i saw it again for sure i was like you know it still works <laughs> <laughs> all right well, that's all i gotta say really about that all right you want to know what other people thought about him sure Oh, they like it. So it's got a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 95% and a critic score of 95%. Audiences and critics agree. The critics consensus reads, The Two Towers balances spectacular action with emotional storytelling, leaving audiences both wholly satisfied and eager for the final chapter. Guess they didn't talk to you. At the box office. I mean, 
I also felt eager for the final chapter. After. You know what I mean? I just but you weren't to... wholly satisfied. I was not wholly satisfied. Okay. At the box office, it made $951.2 million. Like we said, it was the number one film of the year. And at the Oscars, it was nominated for six awards, and it won two for Best Editing and Best Visual Effects. As far as its legacy on the American Film Institute's list of 100 Greatest Lines, at number 85 is My Precious. I was not going to do a Gollum impression, and I hope All everyone's right. okay with that. I want to hear it. I don't have one off the top of my head. I'm not going to just like on. make just one try up it. on just the try spot. It. Let's try it. Let's go. No. I'm not going to talk until you do it. I'm not doing it. Okay, fine. Is that it? Yep. Okay, you need to tell me when we're moving on. I can't tell when you're done. You just look at your computer like you're going to read the next thing you got. You should know by now this is like the millionth episode we've recorded. That's fair. I should know the when structure. That, yeah, you should know the structure of how I do it. All right. All right. So next, coming up next, Gangs of New York, directed by Martin Scorsese, uh, screenplay by Jay Cox, Steve Zalian, and Kenneth Lonergan, based on the nonfiction book from 1927 by Herbert Asbury. America was born in the streets. <laughs> I thought, you like that last line? <laughs> uh, it's 1863. America was born in the streets. They just reused it in the They synopsis. really want to drive that point home. Yes. Uh, Amsterdam Valen, that is a person's name. I know that sounds crazy, but Amsterdam Valen returns to the five points of America to seek vengeance against the, psych- against the psychotic gangland kingpin, Bill the Butcher, who murdered his father years earlier. With an eager pickpocket by his side and a whole new army, Valen fights his way to seek vengeance on the butcher and restore peace in the area. It's a really redundant synopsis, honestly. Yeah. Basically, this dude named Amsterdam is coming to get vengeance on Bill the Butcher because he killed his dad. Mm-hmm. All right, there we go. All righty. Facts. Scorsese spent- We've lost fun <laughs> and interesting. We're just getting the facts yep. now. I'm keeping expectations low. <laughs> Scorsese spent 20 years developing the project until Harvey Weinstein and his production company Miramax acquired it in 1999. Weinstein and Scorsese reportedly had many clashes over the length of the film, with Weinstein wanting a more streamlined commercial version of the film. These clashes caused money delays, resulting in a three-year-long production that went 25% over budget, bringing the total cost over $100 million. That's like chump change these days. What? (laughs) I know. Okay. Uh, in order to create the sets that Scorsese envisioned, the production was filmed in the large Cinecita studio in Rome, Italy. I never claimed to speak Italian. <laughs> Fine. Uh, after post-production was nearly completed in 2001, the film was delayed for over a year. The official justification was after the September 11th attacks. Certain elements of the picture may have made audiences uncomfortable. The film's closing shot is a view of modern-day New York, complete with the World Trade Center's towers. Despite their having been destroyed by the attacks over a year before the film's release. However, this explanation was refuted by Scorsese's own contemporary statements, where he noted that the production was still filming pickups even into October of 2002. The filmmakers had also considered having the towers removed from the shot to acknowledge their disappearance or remove the entire sequence together. It was ultimately decided to keep the towers unaltered. Uh, Martin Scorsese has said that he sees the history of New York City as the battleground of modern American democracy. Quote, The country was up for grabs and New York was a powder keg. 
This was the America, not of the West with its wide open spaces, but of claustrophobia, where everyone was crushed together. On one hand, you had the first great wave of immigration, the Irish, who were Catholic, spoke Gaelic and owed allegiance to the Vatican. On the other hand, there were the nativists, who felt that they were the ones who fought and bled and died for the nation. They looked at the Irish coming off the boats and said, what are you doing here? It was chaos, tribal chaos. Gradually, there was a street by street, block by block, working out of democracy as people learned somehow to live together. If democracy didn't happen in New York, it wasn't going to happen anywhere. End quote. Okay. Interesting. So you, this is the first time you saw this movie, correct? Yes. First viewing. What did you think on your first viewing? I would love to hear what you thought about it first. Why? Because I've talked a lot and I'd like to stop for a oh. second. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, sorry. I just wanted to hear your perspective. So this is my uh, second viewing. I originally watched it when it first came out. Um, I enjoyed it about the same each time, which means just, just about so-so. Um, I personally think this is lesser Scorsese as far as his whole filmography is concerned. And where it does have some really uh, some really great elements and some really great actors, um, overall, its length, its um, its intentions, I don't know, just it all kind of makes it fall a little bit flat for me. Um, but again, I can't deny the performances by such as DiCaprio, but especially Daniel Day Lewis and even Cameron Diaz is a gem in this movie to watch. Um, but yeah. You know, it's just it's it's a it is a cool idea for an immigration story, um, and whereas, man, it's it's interesting to see these battles between immigrants and nativists, mm-hmm. especially you know today, um, it's kind of, it, well, that is like maybe a part of it. I really I really do uh, appreciate and kind of can kind of uh, that I find interesting anyway. Um, the movie as a whole just feels like something I would have rather read the nonfiction book for then I guess see come to life cinematically. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, like you said, this is the first time I saw it, but I am definitely, Scorsese is one of my favorite directors. But I definitely agree with you that I think this is lesser Scorsese. I don't think it's one of his best. I think that, um, you know, you read the synopsis, and I really think that, like, it, it is about this guy coming to seek vengeance for the death of his father, but it takes... A very long time to actually get to that i think that the pay like not it's not even that it's too long i just think the pacing is really off like mm-hmm. there's so much build-up and then the last hour is crammed with so much because there's not even that then there's you know stuff going on with the draft for the civil war and riots yeah. that happen there's just so much that happens in the last act that needed more room to breathe i think as opposed to like leaving so much in the beginning of the like bonding between amsterdam and bill which honestly, honestly, like that is my favorite element of the story. They're like, bonding. Yeah, I don't, I don't love that it's happening. Right, it's all building towards an end you know is coming. But I think their relationship on screen is like one of the most enticing things about the movie. I agree, but then it's also I just think that I agree. Like I like it, and I like the scene where he comes and talks to him in bed. I think is the best scene in the whole film. Absolutely. But I also just think that the the beginning part that's it just takes too long to get to the meat of it at the end. <laughs> the meat of it, Bill the Butcher. Great <laughs> joke, Devin. Yeah, that was planned. Yes, I know. Uh, no, I mean, right for sure. I can't, I can't agree more with that. I think, like, I think Scorsese was obviously trying to have 
all of this happening while the draft, you know, he's, he's building the kind of historical aspects behind it. But I, yes, I feel like should this have maybe been a miniseries or again, left as a nonfiction book, um, for sure. I mean, I would read it as a fiction book. If you want to make this like a sure. novel. Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah. I would read that. Okay. I'm not really going to really read a nonfiction book from 1926, intro- but. <laughs> I mean, fair. Fair. It's probably, probably a little tough read. Probably a little dry. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, solid, solid opening for the most part. See, I um, love the opening. I know you don't. I know you didn't love it, but I thought it was edited very well. I love the build up. The fight turns into something very much of its time. It is of its time, but I still think it's well done. It's okay. You can be wrong sometimes. I'm um, never wrong about Thomas Schoonmaker, so. <laughs> it's ter- it's not even. I'm not saying it's edited poorly. It's the music choice that is being edited too. Is is the is the problem here. Well, they hadn't made good music yet. Okay, it was 2002. What do you okay. want them to do? Okay, okay. <laughs> anyway, that's Gangs of New York. Let's hear some fun facts about it. You want to hear what other people thought? Or what other people thought. That's what I meant. See, I See, still he, don't know the He structure. has no idea what goes on in this podcast. <laughs> uh, it has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 81%, a critic score of 74%. The critic's consensus reads, Though flawed, the sprawling, messy Gangs of New York is redeemed by impressive production design and Day Lewis's electrifying performance. I would agree. I didn't mention that, but I think Daniel Day Lewis' hot take is very good. Yeah. At the box office, it made $193.8 million. It was nominated for 10 Oscars and won zero. And it has not been named to any notable lists. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of those things like. I mean, again, yeah, production design is an interesting, is a good thing to mention because, I mean, the costume design, the production design. Yeah, I really love the all costumes, around. Yeah. honestly. I thought Fantastic. It was really interesting. But this movie is, I mean, it's truly forgettable. And to even come up in a conversation when discussing Scorsese would be just like, oh, yeah, he did do that. You know, it's like that kind of yeah. feeling it leaves you with. So, all right, we're we moving on. Mm-hmm. Okay, next up, we have The Pianist. Directed by Rowan Polanski, screenplay by Ronald Hardwood, based on the book, the autobiography, I should say, yes. of Vladislaw Spielman. I'm glad you took that one. Did I say that right, though? I liked it. It's Yes. Okay. Um, all right. Music was his passion. Survival was his masterpiece. <laughs> yeah. Um, a true story of pianist... Vladislaw Spielman's experiences in Warsaw during the Nazi occupation. Oh, that's it. That's the whole that's, Yeah, that's it. That's, yeah, it is. Actually, that's a longer version uh, than the initial one, too. But, uh, yeah. But I think it really sums up the idea. So, um, yes, that is what happens. <laughs> who's speaking first on this one, Devin? Would you, do you have a preference? I'm going to tell you some quick facts about it. Oh, yes. Man, <laughs> I'm not going to mess it up again. You know what? For the rest of this episode. For the next two movies. The next you gotta two, I'm going to nail it down. Okay. So, yeah, why don't you tell me some stuff about this? Okay. The story had uh, deep connections with director Roman Polanski because he escaped from the Krakow ghetto as a child after the death of his mother. He ended up living in a Polish farmer's barn until the war's end. His father almost died in the camps, but they reunited after the end of World War II. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times gave a positive review of the film, noting that, quote, Perhaps that impassive quality reflects what director Roman Polanski wants to say. By showing Spielman as a survivor, but not a fighter or a hero, as a man who does all he can to save himself, but would have died without enormous good luck and the kindness of a few non-Jews, 
Polanski is reflecting his own deepest feelings, that he survived but need not have, and that his mother died and left a wound that had never healed. Damn. Well said. Yeah. That's why I included it. You know, I think... Actually, I want to jump off that to to talk about you know the events of the movie, and I, and I know we're I know we're gonna address this a little bit differently. But um, Spielman's story is a really interesting way into seeing this side of uh, this side of the Holocaust, like as far as Holocaust taking place in movies, which there's like one great example every decade. It feels like, yeah. Um, and this one was that of the two thousands. Um. To just kind of watch, you know, you're watching this pianist, this guy who's getting by. Clearly, stuff is starting to happen in history in the background. And little by little, we see how Germany um, invaded Poland, like Mm -hmm. basically how they really entered it. And it slowly rights are taken away little by little. And it's really kind of interesting to see that side of things. It's almost like a history book plays out. And it really does cover the whole war at the from that from that point on. and it's really great to see. And I, I really like what Robert Ebert said there, where it was like, um, he's not a fighter, but he's a survivor with a little bit of good luck. And I want to like slightly disagree with that because, and the help of a few kind Jews or whatever he said. Um, not Jews, yeah. Um, oh, sorry. Yes. Um, I think a lot of the Holocaust movies involve a lot of luck. Mm-hmm. on behalf of the the Jews being saved throughout it. I think this one is a little bit different. I think there's definitely like a survive like I mean it's it's well talked about, well documented, but a survivor's guilt with some of these people. Like why did they get to live and others did not? Mm-hmm. And I feel like this movie actually tackles it a little differently and and made it really stand out is interesting to me um where it wasn't just luck on Spielman's part. Like sure that had a bit to do with it, but it was the fact that he was, I don't want to say a celebrity, but like a known pianist. Someone who was a master at their work, a master at something so universal, goes beyond languages, goes beyond borders, as music. And it took the people that appreciated and knew what he did and who he was for that, that saved him. Which is a whole new brand of guilt. Like I find something... Like, why was he good at piano and not his brother or something mm-hmm. like that? And I really feel like regardless if that's how Spielman felt, because I have not read the original source text, it's not really addressed in the movie. But I feel like it does add this whole element and why this one, this man survives, why Polanski decided to tell this story. Mm-hmm. I feel like, yeah, there really is something just kind of beautiful and individualistic there. Um as a way in to to another great story, cinematic story anyway, regarding um, the Holocaust. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think that it, it does. I definitely got um, vibes. There's this book called Bel Canto by um, Anne Pritchett that um, takes place. It's like a hostage situation. There's an opera singer being held hostage, and she continues to perform throughout the the hostage situation. And... Um, and it kind of like brings everybody together. And so I got like a lot of vibes from that where it's like some things, music and art and those kind of things sometimes transcend hate and biases and other things. You know what I mean? So I think that's a really good point. I think, like, yeah, he was incredibly lucky. And, you know, if a few things had gone a little differently, he wouldn't have survived. But I think you're completely right, too, that a lot of the reason that he survived was because of his talent, because he was 
well known for that talent. Mm-hmm. So I think that's very interesting. Because there was nothing to say he was a better person or a more well-liked person than the rest of his family, right? But there was a knowing that he had a gift of sorts. And that, for some reason, made him more special in people's minds. Well, and it got him into spaces. I mean, like, because he was, like, performing in that club where there were non-Jews who were coming into it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? He was just, like, a recognizable face to them. Like, you get once you, like... I think it's easy to say, like, yeah, kill all Jews when you don't have, like, a f- person that you're thinking about. Yes. But it's a lot harder to be like, oh, I'm going to kill this guy that I listen to play piano. Exactly. Every Tuesday. It, exactly. It crosses that... Yeah. It crosses that, th- that threshold and gives something more humanistic than, you know, everybody grows up with music in their lives. Mm-hmm. Especially in a time when there wasn't, you know much else <laughs> you know yeah. it was radio for entertainment as far as like in your home or you know in school that kind of thing but yeah well i definitely i mean i had not seen the film before i thought it was really good i thought that the the art direction was very good as well and a lot of the cinematography i thought was extremely well done and moving and um yeah i thought it was a it was a very moving Holocaust picture. I also think that you'd have to be a really shit director to make a Holocaust picture not moving. <laughs> and no one has said that Roman Polanski is a shit director, only a shit person. Damn. Love it. That's all I got to say about it. All right. What do other people think, Devin? Um, let's see. It has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 96% and a critic score of 95%. The critics' consensus reads, well-acted and dramatically moving, The Pianist is Polanski's best work in years. At the box office, it made $120.1 million. Domestically or globally? There's no way to know that, Kyle. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, my guess would be it's domestically. That's usually what that number is in the place okay. that I find it. So. Okay. But I don't know. When it's an international movie, if that's true. So there's no way to know. Okay. Um, as far as its awards, it was nominated for seven Oscars and won three for Adapted Screenplay, Actor, and Director. It also won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, the BAFTA Award for Best Film and Director, and seven César Awards, which are like the French Oscars. You changed your pronunciation of that word from the beginning of this César. <laughs> what did I say at the beginning? So you, I thought you like threw a never mind. I thought you threw a different emphasis on it earlier. Did you not? I thought I did this. Okay, I don't know. You probably did. You probably did. <clears throat> Sorry, I just coughed in the microphone. As far as its legacy, it was included in the BBC's 100 Greatest Films of the 21st Century in 2016. Excellent. All right, moving on. I wasn't done. Oh, <sighs> that's not funny. <laughs> All right, next is The Hours, directed by Stephen Daldry, with a screenplay by David Hare based on the book by Michael Cunningham. The time to hide is over. The time to regret is gone. The time to live is now. What? (laughs) (laughs) The story of how the novel Mrs. Dalloway affects the... Sorry, let me start over. The story of how the novel Mrs. Dalloway affects three generations of women, all of whom, in one way or another have had to deal with suicide in their lives. The laugh riot of the year. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, Dad, why don't you tackle this one first? Oh, wait, no, well, no, no, no. <laughs> Rewind. <laughs> tackle it with some facts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's hear some facts about the hour, shall we, Devin? All right. I can't remember if you just said this, but as you said, it was based on Michael Cunningham's novel, but it was a Pulitzer Prize winning novel. novel I'm not one. doing that research. Well, I'm letting our listeners know okay. that that novel won a Pulitzer That's fair. Prize. Uh, the movie was disqualified by the Academy for best makeup because digital touch-ups were done on closest of Nicole Kidman to make the nose seem seamless. Come Oscar nomination time, the movie caused problems for Paramount Pictures and Miramax as they weren't sure whether to put Nicole Kidman forward as best actress in a supporting role where she would have been in direct competition with her two co-stars, probably canceling each other out, or as best actress, even though from a screen running time perspective, it is a supporting role. Meryl Streep is in this movie for 42 minutes, Julianne Moore for 33 minutes, and Nicole Kidman for 28 minutes. Wow. Um, and that's really all the information I have okay. about the hours. Do you know anything about, like, how do they change that makeup rule? Because that's, like, crazy to me. There's no way that rule still exists. I have to imagine as, like, digital stuff has become more prevalent, they've gotten rid of that rule. They had to have. I need to find more information on that. Um, And gosh, I you know, I'm going to talk about this first, actually, because... I have to disagree that she should have won for Best uh, Actress for this. Now, who won Best Supporting Actress this year? Catherine Zeta-Jones. Okay, so not Julianne Moore, who actually probably, if one person deserved to win an, an award from this movie, I personally believe should have been Julianne Moore. Yes. Uh, her story in this is the most interesting. Um, she is the most captivating to watch. Her decisions are incredible like i don't i i'm watching it at first and i'm like why is she okay this okay i don't okay um and it just like it kept me going it kept me super interested i love that story her son on the other hand i mean like i told Devin during watching i was like casting did such an incredible job on this movie like nicole kidman julianne moore meryl streep um ed harris like countless others mm-hmm. and then this little boy who just tries to bring the whole freaking film down almost succeeds. <laughs> it's, it, it, it's truly, uh, it's really something else. I don't know his name. It's, you know, it's not worth knowing. I, he probably hasn't had a career. Okay. No, he was just a child actor. <laughs> a bad one though. You know what I mean? There's sure. good child. Don't tell me there was no, get Haley Joe Osmond. Wasn't he around at this time? I don't know. Um, <laughs> is it too early for Haley Joe? I don't I, remember. I don't no, know. it's not. He should have been in it. Okay. Moving on. Um, yeah, I'll just go to you at this point, and I'll, I'll fill in anything else. I'm, I'm, just, I'm getting a little heated, and I shouldn't talk about the movie in such a heated way. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think the hours would inspire such passion in you. <laughs> I'm just really mad at that kid. I can't help it. He was very annoyed with that kid. I can attest to that. <laughs> um, this was the second time I'd seen this movie. I saw it the first time in theaters um, because I was an only child, and my mom would take me to movies like this when I was 12 years old. So... <laughs> Um, and I remember like liking it when I was younger, but I think part of that might have just been like, oh, I like this adult movie, aren't I an adult, you know, <laughs> type of thing. And I still, I appreciate this movie. I think it does some interesting things. I think all the performances across the board are amazing, but I mean, I think that's bound to happen when you have a cast of that caliber. So I think the performances are really good. I think the story... Uh, lacks in some things for me i don't even know how to i don't know what to pinpoint it at is it's just i mean it's just not great Devin. 
Yeah. It's really not great. It honestly feels like a work that um, was probably a, a really decent novel and probably played really well as a novel, but as it wasn't meant to be a film. Yeah. And it feels like they only did it because, you know, they could make it a star-powered vehicle, doesn't require a lot of time from anybody, you know, it's 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 uncinematic. It's not interesting. Yeah. I love depressing things. This is all about three women who are equally depressed. Yeah. And like And it's not Yeah, I think you're right. I think it it probably works a lot better as a book because I think so much of all of their struggles are internal. And so it's very Mm -hmm. hard to make that visually interesting. People's Mm -hmm. like own internal, you know, foibles and whatnot. So I think that, yeah, it just like doesn't really ever. It never comes together for me as a film. Yeah, and it it doesn't. And it doesn't. And I, I know with the end and there's kind of a reveal. Mm-hmm. Right, that kind of ties everything together. Um, it's just not strong enough. It's a great reveal that then just pitters out, like it's just it becomes nothing. It is nothing. Like, I mean, I think Julianne Moore like kills it in that scene, mm-hmm. but like it just it fizzles out to be nothing. Um, I think one of the strongest scenes is the first one, where uh, Virginia Woolf stuff rocks in her pocket. And kills herself in a river. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, we're in for a treat here. All right. You would be excited about an and opening then like that. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm just, I had to ask that. I was like, did she really go like that? Like, and she's like, yeah. So I'm like, damn. <laughs> okay. Uh, but it was all just, yeah, kind of downhill from there. Not, I'm not, sorry. I'm not trying to glorify suicide. I just thought that was a really interesting way to open up a movie. And then it just never really finds it. It also, it's like, good. just, like, puts this, like, sad aura over everything though too because i feel like in virginia wolf storyline you know like things end on a somewhat happier note Mm -hmm. but then you know that you know it's not gonna stay happy obviously yeah i also my biggest pet peeve with this film was the score i felt like the music kept building like because there's a lot of i think the editing's really good they edit between the three stories really well okay they edit between and so like but then they would do these things where like the music felt like it was building towards something building towards something oh my god like building building they're all in bed they're all with flowers they're all like building building and then and then nothing and yeah then just nothing there's happens. nothing building towards i'm like what, what was that music doing no, and i have to like it's interesting i feel like the times we actually talk most interesting about movies is when we, do, we don't like them yeah um but yeah i would have to disagree i don't think it's edited well at all really yes i hated what it was doing with cutting between the three stories. Like I understand. And I'm talking about when they were just doing like, like interesting cuts, like, Oh, here's flowers in one shot. I'm going to move them. And now, now we're in a different time. Blah, blah, blah. I hated it so much. I actually think this movie might've served better being in three different sections. No, I do. No. Cause I think the way that it's edited together is really like driving home the point that these women throughout different decades are still like, so intertwined as people do you know what i mean it's i just think that that is an important aspect to the entire story so i think it has to be edited together that then way. if it's an, then if it's an important aspect you think to the story then it should have been done a lot better but it wasn't in my opinion i think i think it would i think it would serve i'm looking for something to change because like i don't think that what it is like what the story is really about what michael cunningham is writing about i don't think that is an uninteresting story mm-hmm. i think this movie doesn't work and yeah i just think it's not meant to be a movie yeah i i mean 100 percent, it's not meant to be a movie i said that earlier 
Yeah, I'm just agreeing with you. Okay. I, I like also, when you agree with me. As far as Nicole Kidman, like one, I think it's really you know a lot of uh, what you call it, like category shenanigans to put her in lead actress. Yeah. But I also, I mean, like there's a, uh, I think out of the five best picture nominees, three of them are Miramax movies, and Harvey Weinstein before he was known for what he's known for now was known for his uh oscar campaigning shenanigans he campaigned hard for things he bent some rules on stuff and like you know did this sort of thing where he put people in different categories whatever he thought had the best chance so i think a that's part of the reason she's in there but i think also because i personally don't think that she gives that great of a performance in this movie and i think nicole kidman is a really great actress but i also think that when this movie came out, it was around the time that she was divorcing Tom Cruise. And I think prior to that, she was pretty much only really known for being married to Tom Cruise. I don't think that she was, you know what I mean? I think she was most famous for that at that point. And so I think this was the first time that like, she was really like breaking out as like her own thing. And I think that kind of played into her winning as well. Cause I think she's given better performances since then for sure. Yeah, I mean, I just strongly disagree with her win at all. So clearly it was behind the scenes nonsense. Mm-hmm. They should have all been in the best supporting actress category or all in the best leading Well, if it was category. me, I would have put Julianne Moore and Nicole Kidman in supporting and put Meryl Streep in lead. Because, yeah, because the story was centered kind of around the yeah. 2011 story, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I just don't even know if Streep deserved a nomination. And I'm not well, sorry. Meryl I'm not, I'm not trying to hate good. on Streep. I know. I know. I know she's good. I don't um, think this is like the best performance. But I wouldn't I've ever say her give, right. I don't. I wouldn't even say Nicole deserves a nomination. And without that prosthetic, without that makeup, would she even got one? I don't know. I, don't know. I also feel like it's one of those things, like because I think she is a very good actress. But I also yeah. think it was like it took her not being as beautiful for people to like notice that she was a good actress. That's an interesting point, for sure. I don't know. Disagree with the movie all around. So. Alrighty. You want to know what other people thought about it? I do. It has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 84%, a critic score of 80%, and the critic consensus reads, The movie may be a downer, but it packs an emotional wallop. Some fine acting on display here. What do you think the context of it being like a powerful... Would you think like at the time... Sorry if this is our age playing a role here, but like was depression not really covered much in movies? Like I could see it having more weight if it was really yeah. kind of covering something that's not tu- that's kind of taboo, mm-hmm. right? Or not touched as much. But we live in an age now where it's like mental health is on front street. That's so true. Um, I don't know. So maybe it's just his time. Do you think it played an effect here? Yeah, that might be that might be a really good point that mm-hmm. people didn't talk about mental health struggles as much as they are open about it now. Right. That's a good point. At the box office, it made $108.8 million. It was nominated for nine Oscars and won one for Best Actress. And has not been named to any notable lists. <laughs> I would imagine. <laughs> Do they, if I have a list for worst child actors? Weirdly, they don't. Oh, okay. <laughs> we should put together our own. <laughs> After watching a lot of Oscar movies, I feel like we could build a list here. <laughs> All right, you ready for the final film of the night? The Oscar-winning picture. Chicago. I'm doing jazz hands, guys. I'm yeah. <laughs> if only we were a video it podcast. Through the microphone. Yes. Uh, directed by Rob Marshall. Screenplay by Bill Condon. All right. Get ready for this. I got to breathe a few times before going into this one. All right. Based on a book for the musical by Bob Fosse and Fred Ebb, 
which was based on a play by Maureen Dahls Watkins. All right, there we go. Okay. Does that make sense? Did I say that in a way that made sense? There was a play, there that was play a... got turned into a musical, that musical got turned into this movie. Thank you, Devin. Okay, <laughs> let's start it like that. So there was a play by Maureen Dahls Watkins, which got turned into a musical by Bob Fosse and Fred Ebb, which then got turned into this movie. Okay, I just want to give credit where credit's due. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Candor and Ebb, right? Yeah. What? Did I say Candor? Candor and Ebb did the music, yeah. Music oh, the music. music doesn't count for written. Oh, okay. Yep, sorry. I know, only lyrics. Okay. Isn't that the worst? Yeah. What are you going to do? If you can't be famous, be infamous. See, that's a good tagline. That's a fucking good tagline. Oh, now see, now I got to put an explicit on here because I said a swear. Well, let's pile them in now. <laughs> so this fucking murderous uh, Val. Okay, no. So murderous. I can't even do this now. Murderouses. <laughs> What's the plural for murderous? Murderouses. Okay, so I am saying that. Yeah. Right? Murderouses. <laughs> Murderesses Velma Kelly and Roxy Hart find themselves on death row together and fight for the fame that will keep them from the gallows in 1920 Chicago. And then they dance. And then they dance and sing. And sing. And sing. Um, Devin, let's hear some fun facts about it, shall we? All right. Well, I have a bunch of facts about how it was based on the Broadway musical that was based on the play. <laughs> oh, see, great. <laughs> um, Bob Fosse, who directed the original musical he that was supposed to be a film for sorry and i'm like picking around my paragraph <laughs> we covered it didn't we a film version of chicago was to have been the next project for bob fossey who had directed and choreographed the original 1975 and won an oscar <laughs> for his direction of the film version of cabaret and although he died before realizing his vision Fosse's distinctive jazz choreography style is evident throughout the 2002 film, and he is thanked in the credits. And I don't know if you noticed the minimal. Okay, the minimalist. Okay. Night, I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> Just the most important movie of the night. But that's okay. I'm trying to make it seem it. conversational. All right. <laughs> People know this is not conversational. The minimalist 19. So the original Broadway, the 75 original version ran for 936 performances, but was not well received by audiences, primarily due to the show's cynical tone. The minimalist 1996 revival of the musical proved far more successful, having played more than 9,562 performances as of November 17th, 2019. And I do believe it is, I mean, technically Broadway shut down right now because we're still in the pandemic, but I think it's still, that revival is still running on Broadway. And it holds records for the longest-running musical revival, longest-running American musical on Broadway, and second-longest-running show in Broadway history. Its runaway success sparked a greater appreciation for the 1975 original production and renewed stalled interest in the long-anticipated film adaptation, which incorporated the influences of both productions. Uh, so, yeah, like you said, it was based on the play by Maureen Watkins, which is about real-life jazz-era murderesses Balula Ann and Belva Gartner. Not as, yeah, not as off the catchy tongue, names, no. but um, 
Chicago, along with the 2001 musical Moulin Rouge and the hip-hop-centered film Eight Mile in 2002, is widely considered to be responsible for ushering a re-emergence of the musical film genre in the 21st century. For sure. And rightfully so. It's it's one of the best filmed musicals, I think. Um, Absolutely. To jump right in. Uh, this is a movie, actually, my, I, I meant to call my grandmother today, and now I feel like a jerk. But um, she took me to see this movie when it first came out, and we immediately went to Best Buy, and she bought us. T- she bought two copies of the soundtrack, giving one to me. That's fun. And uh, yeah, so it's something. I think that's the only time I had seen the film in its entirety was in two thousand two. Um, I've since seen parts of it on cable or whatnot, but I listened to that record so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and but wow, w- the movie plays like man top speed you know what i mean it's it's a two hour fat in that yeah it's a two hour long show that just flies every number being super solid Mm -hmm. um the performances being awesome the dancing amazing what rob marshall did with his camera uh well rob marshall and cinematographer i lost the name bb no i don't know um but what they did together uh, in just kind of making what would probably be obviously an extraordinary live show uh, cinematic is is just so profound, like so well done. Uh, yeah, the story is ridiculous. Uh, it's also a musical. Uh, so I think that's important to, uh, you know, to keep in mind when going in. But it, it's fun. It's airy. The characters are great. The songs are great. It's about. You know, it's about this taboo subject, but in such a fun and delightful way. Uh, I couldn't ask for anything more. Devin is like, by the way, spacing out over here. She's not even listening to me anymore. Oh, so you couldn't ask for anything more. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I love Chicago. I love musicals. So I was a big fan of this when it came out. I I definitely saw it many times. I owned it on DVD. And um, I love it. And I think that it is, it's not only a great example of a filmed of a of a musical movie adaptation but i think it's like a really great example i think like it ushered in a a reemergence at this time because it is it feels so modern it's taking something that's you know set in the 20s originally written in the 70s revived in the 90s and yet it comes out in the 2000s and it feels incredibly fresh and i think a lot of that is the choreography from rob marshall and his direction and the performing it's just it's perfect like i said there's no fat on it every song every number is you know, amazing, fun. And I think, you know, yeah, it's a musical. It's not, you know, as heavy as something about suicide and depression or the Holocaust or whatever. But I think it's also saying a lot and I think it holds up really well even now because it's about people being famous for being famous, for things that maybe we shouldn't turn people into celebrities for. And I think that is that has not only become more prevalent since it was first written in the in the 20s or 70s or whenever you know like in our culture today there are a lot of people who are famous for who knows what so i think that it it still resonates a lot today so it holds up really well it's for timeless sure. it is I, I that's actually a really good way to put it is this movie more than you know any others really on this list well i guess you can make an argument for lord of the rings right Mm-hmm. Um, it'll always be a go-to for that, but it is timeless. I think P- the pianist is like a historical piece, mm-hmm. and the rest is 
whatever Chicago, I do believe like checks all those boxes. Um, yes, Flurry and people don't exactly love when a musical wins Best Picture, but when a musical does something like this, like elevating the entire genre, uh, it's important to recognize. Yeah, and I don't think. I also think, you know, people, stuff like this, like it's, people don't watch the Oscars because the movies get nominated aren't the movies that people see. You know what I mean? That's why people don't care about the Oscars anymore. And so then I think it's like really shitty when then you say, oh, how can this musical beat a movie about the Holocaust? It's like, well, because people would rather watch a musical sometimes (laughs) than a movie about the Holocaust made by a pedophile. So I just think that (laughs) we need to like celebrate all types of movies. Yeah. And when something is done in a genre that maybe isn't considered as important as other genres, that doesn't mean that what it's doing isn't important for the history of film, for the art of Absolutely. Film. If we were just going to give the award to the most serious, historically accurate movie every... You know what I mean? That's... What are we doing? Right. I, I 100% agree with you. I I think even... You know, when we go back to, like, obviously the following year, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King wins. They weren't going to let that franchise win every year for three years. No. Return of the King winning certainly is... Uh, Culmative award for all three of the films. Exactly, it's just like we're we're giving they're giving credit where sometimes where credit is due. Mm-hmm. Do I think that some superhero movies could and should get nominated? Sure, mm-hmm. I think it's ridiculous that they've become kind of a joke at this point. I think we're gonna see. I think we're seeing right now as Wandavision is airing. I think we're gonna see a changing of kind of and the Watch Watchmen earlier this last year. We're going to see a changing of what superheroes can be mm-hmm. and what that genre can be. And I think it's going to switch to a more serious and, and hopefully somewhat respected genre. And I'm a guy who doesn't even like traditionally like love superhero movies. <laughs> but I think like, yes, I think it's ridiculous that a movie like Chicago might get crapped on by people because of what it is. But what it is is a damn fine movie. Yeah, it is. a It exemplifies what makes a good movie musical. So absolutely. All right, what do other people think about it? Well, I'll tell you, Kyle. It has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 83% and a critic score of 86%. The critics' consensus reads, A rousing and energetic adaptation of the Broadway musical, Chicago succeeds on the level of pure spectacle, but provides a surprising level of depth and humor as well. Wow, that's exactly what we said, kind of. Sorry that my my reading of that sentence was weird. Yeah, it was I feel weird. Like it I was, was missing a word. I didn't want to point it out again, but it's fine. <laughs> um, um, at the box office, it made three hundred six point eight million dollars. It was nominated for twelve Oscars and won six for sound, editing, costume design, art direction, supporting actress, and picture. As far as its legacy. Um, the American Film Institute on their list of the top 25 musicals, it's ranked at number 12. And on their list of 100 songs, All That Jazz comes in at number 98. Very cool. Mm-hmm. So now it's time to ask the question that this whole podcast is about. Kyle, did the Academy get it right? I do think so this year. Yes, I do. Chicago was indeed the best picture. Of at least the nominations. I agree. I think that Chicago is the best film of the five nominees. But maybe, Kyle, there were some other movies. In in 2002? In 2002 that were good, but didn't get nominated for Best Picture. Interesting. Should we maybe talk about it next week? Yeah, I don't have time tonight. Okay, good. Okay. 
And normally I know we tell you what movies we're going to watch for a supplemental episode, but we have not decided that yet. Yeah, I kind of just realized that. Me too. As we started <laughs> as we started segueing to this aspect of the show. So, um, you know what? Just like check the little description before you listen to next week's episode. It'll tell you in there. But um, that was this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. Uh, we came in listening to the best song winner and iconic best song winner lose yourself from eight mile and i i do not disagree with that song 100 percent deserve to win best song okay but let's go out listening to a little all that jazz see you next week come on baby why don't we paint the town and all that jazz i'm gonna stockings down and all that jazz start the car i know a be spot where the gin is cold but the piano's hot it's just a noisy hall where there's a nightly brawl and all that jazz Skitter.